A leader is someone who identifies the potential in somebody and has the courage to develop that potential. I think that's just such a powerful definition of leadership. Hello, this is Mike Payton with the EOS Leader Podcast, and today I'm really excited because I'm speaking with Nick Friedman, owner and co-founder of College Hunks, Hauling, Junk, and Moving. And he's, dare I say, a media darling and a passionate teacher of other leaders as well. Nick's entrepreneurial journey began when Nick and his best friend, since they were 15, shared a dream to create something lasting and meaningful. In college at The U, they started out with a beat-up cargo van, an 800 number, and a memorable name, the College Hunks. Through hard work and relentless dedication to their team members, customers, and community, College Hunks Hauling, Junk, and Moving was officially born in 2005, and the business took off. Two years later, they expanded with a franchise business model and now have more than 150 locations across the United States and into Canada. Nick is a purpose-driven, socially conscious, tech-enabled, and results-driven entrepreneur who invests lots of time and money helping other leaders achieve their potential, which makes him a perfect guest for our show. Nick, thanks so much for being on today. Welcome to the show. Thank you much, Peyton. I'm, I'm happy to be here and, and so glad to be uh, sharing our story with the U.S. community. Yeah, and it's a great story. And I gave just a couple of highlights there, but why don't you start there? Give us a little walk through the relationship you had with your friend, your idea to start a business and and bring us to today. Give me a little two minute overview here. Absolutely. Well, it was definitely a process. I was brought up to follow that more traditional career path, work hard in school, get good grades, get into college, get a degree, start a job, move up the ladder. And my experiences in the corporate world were always a bit unfulfilling. And it happened that the summer before our senior year of college, my best friend from high school, Omar Solomon, approached me with this beat-up cargo van from his mom's furniture store. It was actually, we credit his mom uh, with the letting us borrow the van, but also the name. She looked at us and she goes, you know, you guys could be like the college hunks who haul junk. And we kind of laughed about it at first. And we said, you know, that's kind of got a catchy ring to it. It's kind of a pattern interrupt, not what people associate with uh, junk haulers or movers. So we just put computer printout flyers, stuck them in the mailbox. People had a need for the service. They thought the name was catchy. You mentioned the U. That's we actually won a business plan competition our senior year of college through the University of Miami. Gave us a little more confidence in the idea. And when we quit our jobs to start the business full scale after college, I always tell the story. We had the 800 number on the back of our truck routed to our cell phones, and people would call the 800 number to complain about erratic driving, and we'd be the one in the driver's seat, (laughs) apologizing, letting them know we don't condone that driving in our company. We probably fired ourselves three or four times that first summer. And uh, ultimately, we learned, you know, the the important mantra of working on the business, not just in the business. And we learned about franchising as a uh, business expansion model. Uh, and so that was sort of the next light bulb moment for us. If we were ever going to have another truck, let alone another location, we had to uh, create systems and processes. So that's what we embarked on and describe ourselves as a 15-year overnight success. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, today we've got over 150 franchisees around the country, over 200 million in annual sales. And so... Uh, been a long journey since that first early day of, of beat up cargo van junk hauling, yeah. but uh, it's been a fun one, no doubt. I'm curious as to what were you motivated to 
look into franchising because you wanted to grow or because you were having bandwidth problems and you couldn't figure out how, what was the motivation to investigate different frameworks for growth? So I'll be honest, I think at the time, franchising had a glamorized model in my mind of, hey, we could make royalty income, which sounded like passive income, mm-hmm. by having other people invest in the franchise and doing the heavy lifting and hard work, and we could create collect a royalty from it. That was the farthest thing from reality of franchising. It's a very, you know, I like to call it get-rich-slow process, <laughs> where uh, you're very much involved in the success of your franchise owners, and you have to have many of them at a large scale in order for the royalty stream to be meaningful. Mm-hmm. So we kind of got into it almost by accident, thinking it was going to be a way to grow quickly. But ultimately, it proved to be a very viable expansion strategy for our brand, because I think a lot of people will franchise their brand when they're limited on resources financially, uh, limited on staffing and personnel resources, and they do want to grow and expand. It really is. It's an expansion model for a brand or for a business uh, model. And so ultimately, we, we probably got into it for the wrong reason, but learned very quickly the steep learning curve. Uh, got involved with the IFA, the International Franchise Association, and decided that that was going to be our, our, our long-term growth strategy. And, and so stuck to it and, and ultimately approved to uh, to pay dividends. Oh, that's awesome. Tell me about the relationship with you and Omar. When did the idea seem a good one for the two of you to go into business together? Well, I think, you know, like a lot of young boys or girls in high school, you sort of have a friend and you have those sort of sitting around the table conversations about, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we did a business one day or invented something together? Wouldn't that be awesome? And you have this, we had those discussions, those sort of visionary dream-like discussions of ambitious futures. But it wasn't until his mom gave us this beat up cargo van and the keys to that van until we she sort of suggested that name that we sort of had something to attach an idea to actually making into a reality. And so we got off to the races pretty quickly when we started it together. But I always say that the key that's been held our friendship and our business partnership together over the years is that our vision and our values have been in alignment and we've been very effective at communicating. There's been times where we might disagree on how to do something, but we've got sort of that that level of trust and you know, as you know, the Patrick Lencioni business model, the healthy conflict that we would embrace and we, you know, we commit to our decisions. We don't shy away from holding each other accountable. And ultimately, we wanted the business to succeed and put that above our individual agendas or egos. So our friendship and our business partnership thrived. I think it's kind of unique. We came into it as 50-50 partners. We remain 50-50 business partners today, which a lot of times, you know, our advisors and, and business books would advise against but we've been able to sort of make it work through that foundation of trust and and shared vision and, and shared values and communication. And you two are two different personality types as well. Do you think maybe the diversity of approach or attitude or emotion contributes to that? Omar's a little bit more laid back. I jokingly refer to him as a jellyfish. He kind of goes with the current and goes with the flow and assumes everything's yeah. going to fall into place. I'm a little bit more of that high-strung, obsessive, compulsive, every detail has to be ironed out and, and hashed out. And I think we both recognized that in each other and appreciated that in each other. Like I didn't resent him for being laid back and he doesn't resent me for being obsessive compulsive. You know, we're sort of further at these two different polar spheres and we meet somewhere in the middle where we actually help uh, benefit each other and the business together. Uh, And so I think I was used to describe, you know, I don't know if you remember that old TV commercial where there was like, I'm the Apple, I'm the PC. 
Uh, Omar was like the first guy to go out and get an iPhone, and I was probably the last guy to get rid of his BlackBerry. So that was kind of the way our, our personalities uh, differed in, in, in that regard. But I do think that complemented our approach and our contributions to the business uh, along the way. I want to program your BlackBerry number into my Motorola Razor. Right. Uh, exactly. So I'm right with you. I am right with you. Well, it's interesting because I, I see this often in the work we do with our clients. In fact, I, I, I would mention Gino Wickman and Don Tinney, the co-founders of EOS Worldwide. The, the different perspectives and approaches, what I witnessed with the two of them is when they agreed on something coming at it from two distinctly different avenues, they were both super confident and ready to go execute like crazy. And so I sometimes think we leaders make a mistake of trying to get more people like us in the organization when really what we need is different perspectives, different belief systems, different angles to look at every problem from. It sounds like that's worked for you and Omar. Yeah, I think so. And, and having to remind myself that that difference is an advantage and not a disadvantage. Right. Having to remind myself that I probably wouldn't be as successful and the business wouldn't be as accomplished if there were two Nick Friedmans as opposed to a Nick Friedman and an Omar Solomon. Yeah. And so I think recognizing that, acknowledging the frustrations sometimes if he wasn't approaching something the way I think I would have approached it and just being okay with that recognition, I think was very important because there were many times where, where we had arguments or I would walk, you know, come home frustrated. But I think the fact that we started as friends, you know, friends that didn't have any filter with how we spoke to each other either and didn't get offended by each other with how we spoke. So like I would lay into him via text message if I was upset about something or if I disagreed about something and he'd lay back into me via text message and then we'd show up and it'd be as if nothing ever happened. We were just right back to friends and business partners again. So we didn't take things personally or, or hold grudges or anything like that. And I think that's really important. You think you see that in sports all the time too, with the championship team that having that locker room dynamic where a guy can yell at his teammate yeah. and not take it personally or, or be offended by it, but actually go out and, and play harder as a result of it. And that's kind of the relationship that we've always had. Oh, that's great. That's great. Let's talk about the early days. When was the first minute you realized you were on to something here? So when we first literally created the computer printout flyers and stuck them in mailboxes, the phone started ringing and, and people said, hey, is this the college hunks hauling junk? And we kind of looked at each other at least a, a little confused at first. And we're like, oh, yeah, we, we put out those flyers today, didn't we? <laughs> so people had a need for the service. They thought the name was catchy. And so the light bulb went off for me right away that there could be something to this. And then there, there were some reinforcements that kind of built our confidence along the way as well. When we won the business plan competition in college, certainly uh, another vote of confidence and, and credibility to the concept. I actually kept my day job for about the first three months after college when we started the business uh, full time. Omar quit his job right away. But I remember coming home at the end of the day where I got up really early to work on college hunks. Then I went to my nine to five, but I was sort of side jobbing it in my computer that day and on the phone. And then I get home and I'm calling missed calls back from college hunks all into the evening. I told my dad, I said, you know, I've been working probably 12 hours and I'm not tired at all. And he said, you know, Nick, it's probably time for you to go full time into that business because you're you're passionate and ready and enthusiastic mm -hmm. about this college hunks concept. And obviously we saw that there was a need for the service and people like the name. So that's kind of when I started going all into it. Yeah. I've been around enough entrepreneurs to know it wasn't always easy. So were there any major mistakes or bumps in the road that you two had to navigate through that were really scary for you? 
Well, I think some of it stems with uh, a lack of patience. I've tried to remind myself, uh, embrace the. You don't say. I as if there's how I'm so surprised. (laughs) Yeah, a a mantra I say to myself very often, and other entrepreneurs is embrace the pace, because every time I tried to shortcut success or try to uh, fast track uh, the results or the outcome Mm. was like five steps in the wrong direction. Uh, An example is like when we started franchising. Uh, was right around the time the housing crisis took place. And so we thought we were going to be growing a lot faster. All of our projections had us growing a lot faster, but things slowed it down significantly, both for our consumer side of the business and franchising. And so we started thinking like scrambling, saying, what else can we do? Can we do property preservation? Can we change out locks? Can we paint houses? Can we pressure wash houses? And we were spending all this money and time and energy chasing all these sort of marbles on the table. And they were all rolling off the table at the same time is what it felt like as opposed to just focusing on our core, which was trucks and labor, moving people's stuff, hauling people's junk away. Uh, so those were some of the costly mistakes that we made in the early days. Some of the some of the marketing investments that we made in the early days, you know, with radio or TV, some of the mass media that maybe we weren't ready for and didn't have the bandwidth to handle. And then some of the software investments we made in the early days, we kind of committed to some things without doing full due diligence and, and getting locked into these software contracts that were, you know, sort of, unable to, to scale with, with our business as we started to grow. Uh, so those are some of the challenges and heartaches in the early days that I can remember and, and look back on. Uh, but at the, end of, at the end of the day, they sort of also kind of were learning blocks and lessons. And, you know, yeah. I, I don't know if, if we'd done them differently, how, how the outcome could have been any different. Yeah, failure is the fastest and most permanent teacher. No question Absolutely. about it. Yeah. And, and, and I'd rather play ready, fire, aim, then ready, aim, 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 aim. So I'm a firm believer in ready, fire, aim, without a doubt. Yeah. And my guess is Omar is more of a ready, aim, fire guy. And so there's that mm-hmm. creative tension again, and you guys work through it together and, you know, you're not going to get it right every time. So that's exactly. cool. great, great stuff. Let's change the subject a little bit away from the business and, and just focus on leadership in general, because I know how passionate you are about that. I know that's something you and your team care a, a tremendous amount about with your franchisees, and and that's the purpose of this show. So, so I want to start with your earliest recollection of somebody who was leading that you observed, maybe a, a cultural figure, or a political leader. Yeah. Who was the first leader you remember looking at, going, "Wow, that's leadership." So it actually was a little bit skewed vision of leadership in that early day. So I was probably in about fifth or sixth grade. I was a huge basketball fan and I was watching a tape about Michael Jordan Mm. and all of the folks they were interviewing his teammates and so forth. were talking about how great of a leader Michael Jordan is, but then the B roll footage that the videotape showed was basically Michael Jordan getting in the face of his teammates and pointing his finger in their face and yelling at them and barking at them. And so I equated yelling at somebody as being a leader, even though that's not actually what Michael Jordan's leadership was all about. It was about his hard work, his determination, his teamwork and camaraderie and and, and visionary leadership and so forth. And yes, he happened to bark at his teammates, but that was sort of the secondary aspect of his leadership. But as a 10, 11 year old kid, I just saw the videotape of him yelling at somebody and thinking that that's what a leader was. So I definitely made my coaches and teachers very 
puzzled when I started yelling at my classmates and yelling at my teammates. And I was certainly no Michael Jordan from a, from a skill level standpoint. So I was like a, you know, bench warmer getting up and yelling at my teammates, thinking that I was being a leader. So I had aspirations to be a leader. I just wasn't <laughs> attaching it yeah. to, you know, the right actual uh, uh, approaches to leadership. Yeah. Uh, and it, it wasn't really until we started the business that I really became passionate about reading and learning about business leaders, political leaders, sports leaders, and learning about inspirational leadership, learning about uh, developing leaders, which is why, as you mentioned, it's become one of our core values in our company, building leaders. You know, we're hiring a lot of times 18 to 30 year old young men to do this heavy lifting and, and the junk hauling and the moving side of the business. And and the idea is we want to empower and, and instill skills that they can carry throughout their career, not just at college hunks. And we've got some great examples of guys who started out on the trucks that now own franchises or who've gone to uh, take on leadership positions within our corporate side of the business. And, um, you know, my favorite definition of leadership is, is a Brene Brown definition where she says uh, a leader is someone who identifies the potential in somebody and has the courage to develop that potential. I think that's just such a powerful definition of leadership that you recognize somebody's potential and you have the courage to develop that potential, which is very different than, you know, just barking orders into somebody's face, which was my initial impression of leadership at an early age. So I had to sort of fix that and correct that as I evolved. That's a great story. And it underscores for me the richness of this topic because barking at somebody is in a way leadership, but it's one of a bunch of weapons we need to carry around in our toolkits to be great leaders. When you have high standards and you know people are underperforming what they're capable of, an approach is to take no prisoners and and let them know how disappointed you are. But it's so much more than that. And if you only yeah. if you're a one trick pony, this is a pretty tough thing to take on leadership. Well, it, it also is identifying what motivates one person is very different than what motivates exactly. another. So like some of Michael Jordan's teammates might have been motivated by him barking at them and yelling at him, yeah. whereas others might have curled up in a shell and wanted to go hide in the locker room because the best basketball player was yelling at them and maybe they needed to be patted on the back and, and, and encouraged and, and stroked about how great they are. And so it's, I think, also identifying in yourself, in your colleagues, in, in the folks who you're, you're leading, what it is that's motivating to them, what inspires them, uh, from a personalized standpoint. And that's something else that I think I've picked up on over the years is, is, is trying to personalize the approach to leadership. It's not a one-size-fits-all for right. everybody who you're leading. People are motivated by different things. Well, they're humans, and they're, mm -hmm. they respond best to somebody who's meeting them where they are. Again, you don't have to kowtow to everybody's needs, but you, you do need to contemplate them in the way you lead, for sure. Yeah, great Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. Have you run across other leaders whose capabilities you hope to emulate? Well, you know, what's funny is we have a leader within our organization. We, you know, following the EOS model, we recently hired an integrator or promoted an integrator a couple of years ago. So Omar and I are both in the visionary seat as, as co-visionaries. And our integrator, Roman Cowan, uh, has leadership attributes that are just natural within him that I would love to emulate and, and I look to emulate. And what I'm in some of those uh, attributes that I, that I recognize in him, he doesn't get rattled when things are off kilter. He's very good at listening and also communicating 
logic and helping other pe- other people understand logic. Like I have a tendency as an entrepreneur to have knee jerk reactions, get very emotional or defensive if somebody's criticizing our approach as a franchisor or our service as a moving and hauling business or our, our approach as an employer without pausing, listening, and then understanding before communicating. So those are some, I think, natural characteristics and components of, of great leaders that I recognize even in one of our leaders uh, within the organization who effectively reports to me, but has helped be a good role model for me as a leader as well. And uh, you know, I think there's probably some things that, that he recognizes in me that he's picked up on as well for, from a communication and inspirational standpoint. So I think that's very important also is to you know surround yourself with other leaders that have approaches and characteristics that, that you want to emulate and embody also. Yeah. Let's flip the tables a little bit. Have you ever worked with or for or observed somebody leading poorly? And what are the characteristics or attributes you would assign to that? You know, I think the example that I could probably come up with is also within our organization. When we first started becoming very core values focused and purpose driven focused, we had some folks that started to neglect the results and the performance of the business. And they were focused strictly on creating this sort of soft, warm, and and fuzzy environment. And the problem was it was creating a little bit of a sense of entitlement, and it was allowing for a lack of accountability with performance within the organization. And so we had one individual that was, you know, always like, well, no, these are the core values. If we try to hold them accountable to X, Y, and Z, then we're going against our, our company culture. We're not as, you know, as warm and fuzzy as we propose to be. And I read a quote from Jack Welsh where he said, the soft stuff doesn't work unless it's accompanied by performance-based toughness. And so I think as a leader and as a culture, we've got to have this balance of results and that warm and fuzzy culture of inclusion and welcoming and core values and, and purpose and everything else. But at the end of the day, without a margin, there's no mission. And so I think we had an example where and this probably was a reflection, quite frankly, on me as a leader, because I was beating the culture and vision and values drum so right. hard. I wasn't talking about the big picture of, hey, we also have to perform. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough communication needle to thread, uh, yes. Nick, in that most of us are passion driven and deeply care about the people that work for us and with us. And, and we want to show up as empathetic, you know, mission driven uh, leaders, but at the end of the day, you know, we've got a job to do. Our customers need to be satisfied and the work needs to get done and the and the profits need to be generated. And and to be able to navigate through that communication minefield is really difficult. What was the way you worked out of that situation where the pendulum maybe had swung a little too far? What did you and Omar and the rest of your team decide to do? It started with communication. I, you know, internally, my internal monologue, actually, this was a quote that Omar said just between he and I. He said, you know, we need to have a little bit more Wall Street and not all Sesame Street. And I said, <laughs> I, I said okay, you know, you're probably right. Like, we've swung a little bit too far on the Sesame Street side, and, and you need to, you know, swing a little bit more in the middle with, and have a little bit of the Wall Street side mixed in. And so I, I liked that. You know, we couldn't communicate it that way. To I, re- I really wish you had. That is really yeah. good. Yeah, That's like, right. okay, and- this year our focus is Wall Street, not Sesame Street. <laughs> um, but no, I think we got down. I Actually, I took that Jack Welch quote. I put it in some of my annual slides. I talked about sort of having the balance of performance-based toughness and the fact that we're going to be a winning team. And what does winning mean? It means living our values, but it also means achieving our metrics and achieving our financial objectives because I also like that quote, no margin, no mission. If, yeah. if we're not growing, 
we're not profitable, then we can't be purpose-driven. We can't give back. We can't do the community-based programs that we want to also uh, instill and develop. And so it just became part of the overall arc of communication. It was less about culture, culture, culture. It was more about culture and performance is part of the integrated approach of, of this brand. And we want to win. Winning is fun. So when you win, it's also part of the culture. Yeah, and that's that's where I always go with that, too. I remember uh, Nick Saban coached Alabama team 10, 11 years ago, winning by three touchdowns in the fourth quarter of a, a national championship game against Notre Dame. And the center and quarterback, both of whom were headed for the NFL, got in a shoving match because there was a muffed snap. The game wasn't on the line. But that's what happens in a championship team is your standards of performance are so high that the deep bond, these guys were very good friends, and the deep bond they had as friends was built on that mutual high expectation of one another's performance. And I think you can do both, but you've got to genuinely care about the people and the result. Would you agree? I would agree. I would agree. I, I love the Nick Saban example. We talk about him a lot in our organization because we're, you know, again, we're hiring a lot of young men to do the frontline work. We're constantly recruiting. I saw an interview with, with him where he said, you know, the names on the jerseys may change when guys graduate or go to the NFL, but the identity of Alabama football doesn't change. When, when a freshman comes on campus, the sophomore, junior say, this is how we do things here. And so it just becomes ingrained in, in the DNA. Uh, and he also talked about how complacency breeds bad decisions. So that's something else that I've stuck with me is like every time we've hit new milestones of success, I used to say to myself, hey, if we could just get to a million dollars, I'd be happy. If we could just get to $10 million, we'd be okay. If we could get to $100 million, we would be done and I could just hang up the cleats and, and I wouldn't have to stress anymore. But that perspective of complacency breeds bad decisions also sort of driven has driven me to say, okay, it's not just about getting to a certain level and just putting my feet up and relaxing, but it's it's about building a, a greater organization that can do greater things, that can provide for more individuals at the franchisee level, at the employee level. So I, I do think all of those things are, are critical for for you know building something that's that's lasting and, and that you know endures. I want to stick with this theme of of the fact that you hire a lot of young men and, and entry level people and you know, this is the great challenge in the economy today, the labor shortage. I literally 100% of my clients are struggling to find enough of the right people. And so talk to me about how you and the other people in your organization are leading and managing in order to attract the right kind of people and repel everybody else. What are you guys doing to solve this problem? Yeah, well, we're not immune to the challenge. That's for sure. I mean, it's it's it, we face it as well. Uh, every franchisee in our system, if we talk to them, they'll tell you that uh, hiring is their biggest challenge right now, and they would be doing twice as much revenue if they could keep enough guys to stay fully staffed. So, it's something that we've always done well, but it's not something that we you know don't still struggle with. The things that we do is I look at it no different than a marketing and sales funnel. You know, we've got marketing and sales for consumers, but we've also got marketing and sales for teammates, team members, uh, employees. And so we've got to be on all the job postings and the job posting has to be relevant. You could have two different job postings for the same position, same company, and one will get zero applicants, one will get a hundred. So, you know, are we toying with the verbiage? Are we advertising at the um, hospitality section of Craigslist instead of just the service and labor section to see if, you know, we can find some folks that maybe, you know, lost out on jobs in hospitality during COVID and don't want to go back into that nightlife grind. We've promoted the fact that our employees are 
more highly compensated than the you know comparable jobs that are out there but it's more than just the it's more than just a job it's about improving you know finding a place where you can feel belonging a sense of uh, empowerment and, and and development and and have aspirations and meet your goals so it's it's a multivariate equation no doubt there's no magic pill you know just like if you're having a shortage of customers there's no magic marketing switch uh, but it's you know incentivizing our existing all-star employees to try to refer some of their friends and colleagues so we have referral and retention bonuses and, and things of that nature we've got a lot of training and, and retraining to try to you know help folks feel a level of, of moving forward and then of course we always emphasize and, and focus on the core values and and how that creates an environment where you know people want to be they don't feel like they have to be or they ultimately choose to be yeah, you, you've talked a lot about high standards of performance, high expectations, you know, adherence to core values. Are you finding it hard to have people remain confident that you should manage to those standards when the labor shortage is so compelling? Yes. Short answer, yes. Yeah. It, that is that is tough. I mean, look, I've had some franchisees say, you know, we used to require people to come in come in for an interview. Now I'm asking them three questions. If the answer is yes to these three questions and they pass the background check, we're bringing them in and we're yeah. training them and we got to get them on the truck. And then, you know, if they're not good enough, we can try to filter them out. So it's a, uh, it's definitely a bit of a new environment than we're accustomed to, but we've got to meet the customer demand at the same time. So yeah. I wish I had a great answer for you, but adjusting to the environment that we're in, it's trying to make sure that we're doing everything we can to attract the best and train the very best. Yeah. Uh, but every employer out there is going through the same thing. So there, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if sort of nationally, not only are we going to experience a bit of a labor shortage, but we'll probably experience a little bit of a service deficit, if you will, because, yeah. you know, restaurants and hotels and home yeah. improvement companies, they're all just, you know, scrambling to get bodies and they're not taking the time to train and, and, and adhere. So, you know, I don't know what's going to fall first. And they're out of practice, right? There's, practice. A, there's a large sector of the economy yeah. that hasn't been practicing its game for the last 18 to 24 months. And it's it's evident. Yeah, no question yeah. about it. No question about it. That's good stuff. Uh, in your leadership journey, you're working with lots of other entrepreneurs in the YPO and your investment activities and that sort of thing. Are you seeing any consistent themes as to what makes for a great or not so great entrepreneurial leader in all the networking you're doing these days? There's a couple things that, that stand out to me. I think actually giving a damn and, and caring about your people and caring about what it is that you're doing matters. I think when I meet somebody that's, I know the word passion gets thrown out a lot, yeah. but when I meet somebody that you can tell is passionate about what they're doing, that is infectious. That rubs off on their employees, that rubs off on their clients, that rubs off on their investors. And so, you know, having a level of enthusiasm and excitement over what you're doing and being able to maintain that level of enthusiasm and excitement and motivation, uh, I think is critical because uh, if somebody's just motivated purely by the financial aspect of it, that's pretty shallow and that can be picked up on pretty easily and, and pretty quickly. And quite frankly, he or she or their colleagues are going to get very you know, disillusioned or move on if things get difficult or things get challenging. And we saw this with some of our folks and peers during the COVID crisis. My colleagues in YPO and, and other entrepreneurs and our franchise owners that had sort of had a foundation of a strong culture they were the ones that sort of locked arms and sort of muscled through this uncertainty of the COVID uh, pandemic and saying, hey, we're going to make it through this no matter what. And I always like the, uh, the Warren Buffett quote. He goes, you know, you see who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out. And so I think when this whole COVID thing happened, 
the companies and the entrepreneurs and the leaders that had you know focused on their foundation and their core were able to navigate the uncertainty, make quick changes, yeah. uh, make difficult, decisive decisions. In some cases, that meant making you know employment cuts or, or other cutbacks, but able to withstand that and not have people you know turn their back on the business or or turn their back on on the leader when things got tough. So I think those are some of the keys to uh, successful kind of leadership in entrepreneurial endeavors or, or just in general. Have you or Omar or Roman had to adjust your leadership style in good times versus bad? Or do you find that you're able to stay consistent in your approach and your style under all? So this gets back to your question earlier about recognizing good leadership. I think Roman maintained his composure throughout the entire pandemic and was very confident and poised. I think Omar and I, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say we had a little bit of moment of panic during the headlights where, you know, <laughs> we were like, hey, are we going to lose everything we've worked 15 yeah. years for? I wanted yeah. to have that moment where I wanted to crawl under the bed and, and cover myself with a blanket. I had our CFO run projections of us revenue going down to zero for the remainder of the year. And I basically was, you know, beating on Roman's desk saying, you know, we have to make these decisive cuts right now because this thing might go to zero and might never come back for, you know, any time that we might see. So if I jumped to the worst case scenario and he helped me rein that emotion back in very quickly because obviously uh, stoic leadership uh, is very critical, especially in times of uncertainty or times of crisis. And so I think the importance of that stoic leadership is critical both in good times and bad. And so that's something that I've been working on myself as well. I think as an entrepreneur, I, I, I get emotional. I get hot-blooded sometimes and, you know, knee-jerk reaction sometimes. So I, I would say my first step is becoming a little bit more self-aware, but then the next step is trying to at least acknowledge or, or recognize when I'm, you know, getting getting wound up. And, and my teammate, my team members, I think, and colleagues recognize that now, and I'll, I'll at least point it out when I do I have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. I'll say, hey, that was that was a Nick knee-jerk reaction, and they at least appreciate that I acknowledge it when it happens. Well, you know, self-aware is the first step. Able to do something about it is the second step. I'm still working yeah. on that step myself, Nick, so you and I, you and I are getting along just fine. So one of the, the clips I saw of your leadership background, I believe you were on a panel at the White House on entrepreneurship. And, you know, a, a very frequent topic when we're sitting around talking about leadership is, is there a difference between political leadership and cultural leadership and organizational leadership and business leadership and entrepreneurial versus, you know, big government agencies? And so I'm just curious your opinion, having been exposed to all these different types of leaders, are there common threads and are there key differences? I think it's all common. I think it's all a common thread. I mean, I think leadership is leadership. I think the platform by which you're leading may be different. You know, I'm leading at a entrepreneurial franchise organization. A politician may be leading at a political municipal organization or, or platform. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it boils down to you know, vision, shared values, communication, priorities, and, and execution. And it's really, I mean, I think that's why I think the EOS model is so great. I've, I've been a, a believer in, in EOS. And, you know, I think I shared with, with you previously that when we started adopting EOS, we were at 10 million. It's helped us get to 200 million. I think that it could be applied, those tools, in, in any type of organization, not just an entrepreneurial one. And obviously, there might be some little tweaks and modifications that to be relevant to the, the specific platform, but I see it all as common thread from a leadership standpoint. Yes, if the people involved actually want to get results, that's the what my brother early that's a great point. early that's a great point. 
early in my journey, my brother said, do you think this would work for the U.S. government? And I said, I don't even want to know. Well, you know what the challenge is there, right? And, and I hate to get on a fixed political tangent, but the challenge there is is that in an entrepreneurial organization, you ideally have everyone rowing in the same direction. But the whole point of politics is to not have everyone at least in a two-party system, not have everyone rowing in that same direction. It sure <laughs> seems like that's the whole point of politics. And I think that was the nature of my response. Yeah, This stuff, like any system or any set of tools, this stuff works when the people using them want to use them to achieve a common objective. Yeah, And until we get to the point where people seem to want to achieve a common objective again, yeah. I think it's going to be a tough uh, yeah. road and I, to I, I always come back to that Patrick Lencioni model, the foundation of trust. Yeah, Because if there's trust, then there's what he calls healthy conflict. Conflict is good, but it's got to be healthy conflict, but it can't be healthy without trust. And without trust, there's nothing. So, And healthy conflict leads to resolution, whereas unhealthy conflict is conflict for conflict's sake. And that's the paradigm we seem to yeah, get stuck that, in. Yeah, that so. leads to the meeting after the meeting. That leads that's to right. all the other commentary, that's you know, right. on the other you know channels and so, so on and so forth. That's right. That's good stuff. A couple of last questions before I let you go. You've been most generous with your time and I'm having a blast. So have you found that your personal life with your family or your outside interests has been influenced by what you've learned as a leader in your business? And if so, how? Absolutely. Number one, I ask for feedback, not just from my work colleagues, but from my personal friends and family as well about what are some characteristics and aspects of my behavior that are great and that I should keep doing. And, and what are some characteristics and aspects of my behavior that, that are sort of undermining my success as a fill in the blank friend, father, teammate, coach, business leader. Uh, and so asking for that feedback has been eye-opening and, and helped me with some of that self-awareness that we talked about previously. I've also actually created a uh, sort of a, a VTO for our family. So with my wife and, and, and I, and, and, and you know, we have three young daughters, we've got sort of our vision, our core values as a family, what are some of the sort of the rhythms that we want to do from a meeting standpoint to map out the year, the months ahead. My wife laughs at me a little bit because I can be a little bit, you know, by the book, but it really does help, you know, having that communication along the lines of what is it that we want to achieve? What is the type of culture that we want to develop as a family together? Uh, and then my, my six-year-old daughter makes fun of me. And, you know, she's like, Eddie, are you going to be reading me the values board again? And you know, <laughs> this commitment and, and hard work and, and all this stuff. And, you know, I just want to go play with my dolls. But yeah. uh, so, you know, who knows how that will turn out. But I've definitely tried to apply that in, in other aspects of my life. Yeah, as do I. And it, it is it is a little funny. And I do get a little overzealous from time to time. So you're yes. not alone there either, Nick. Last question for you. Go back to you and Omar sitting in the college dorm room talking about this van that his mother had and deciding to launch this business. If you could have given yourself one piece of advice as a young leader just embarking on a career, what's the most important thing you would have told yourself? You know, Peyton, I think I said it earlier. It's be patient and embrace the pace. There's no shortcuts. You're going to get there when you get there, because I can't tell you how many times I angst over comparing myself to other entrepreneurs. You know, in my 20s, I would look at these guys with tech businesses that had, you know, three employees and they were doing five million with, you know, four million EBITDA. And I would be 
banging my head against the wall and be like, how, why didn't I do a business like that? Or why I wish I had started that company. And, you know, here I am now almost 40 and the business is doing phenomenally well. It's, it's, uh, you know, financially fulfilled. I'm, I'm pro- professionally and personally fulfilled. And I don't think I would have changed anything about the journey along the way. I probably would have, you know, done something stupid had I fallen into that type of money back then. So I, you know, I think just trusting the process, trusting the timeline and, and just staying persistent with the project that you're, you're pursuing is, is going to be the key to it. So that would have been the advice I'd give myself. I probably would have had a few less sleepless nights knowing that everything was going to be okay, that we were going to get to this, you know, other side at some point and just sort of be able to live the entrepreneurial nirvana eventually. Great piece of advice, Nick. Thank you for sharing that. And then the last thing, just a little housekeeping, those people inspired by our conversation that want to learn more about you or your company, where should they go to do that? Well, for our company, go to collegehunks.com. You can learn about our franchise opportunities, learn about our moving and hauling services nationwide. Uh, for me, nickfriedman.com, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, nickfriedman.com. You can connect with me personally or, or on social, but grateful for everything that you do, Peyton, and, and the EOS community. Uh, our business wouldn't be where it is without it. So uh, I'm just so uh, so happy for everybody here who's listening and who's, who's part of EOS also. Well, you made me a better leader today, and I know the other people listening will feel the same way. That's what this is all about. Thank you for joining us today, Nick. You've been most gracious with your time. My pleasure. Thank you. If you're interested in applying what you've learned today in your own business, the five books in the Traction Library can be helpful resources on your journey. You can learn more about those five books and actually order them at a deep discount by visiting eosworldwide.com. 